morning we are in uh, our sixth week in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew all the way until Easter Sunday in April, and so I hope you're ready for a lot of Matthew. Um, so far, we've looked at the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. We talked about the wise men, the magi that traveled to worship Jesus. The first Sunday of the new year, we talked about John the Baptist, and we learned about repentance and what that means. Last week, last week we went into the wilderness with Jesus, where he was tempted by the, de- uh, by the devil, and uh, we learned about temptation. And we're through the first four chapters of Matthew, which brings us to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which are commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This might, maybe was one long sermon or possibly a compilation of some of the things that Jesus preached, but this is one of the more memorable passages in the gospel. We could spend months just in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to go through it in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. If you want to use the blue Bibles that are in the pews in front of you, uh, you can. Um, we're on page 472 in those Bibles. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus is preaching and he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this morning, I want to talk to you about salt and light, and really three ideas this morning, the nature of salt and light, the value of salt and light, and then lastly, the purpose of salt and light, the nature, the value, and the purpose. So let's talk first about the nature of salt and light. Now, this is going to sound really, really, really obvious, but the phrase salt of the earth means that salt is distinct from the earth. And the phrase, the light of the world, means that the light is distinct from the world, specifically from a world of darkness. And so the nature of salt and light is that they are distinct, right? Salt is distinct or different from the food that it preserves or the food that it seasons. And light is different than darkness. Light is clearly distinct from the darkness that it dispels. So when Jesus looks at his followers and says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he is reminding them of their distinctiveness, that they're called to be different. In the Bible, there's a term that is used to describe how believers are to be different, and it's the word sanctified, which simply means that we've been set apart. In Romans chapter 15, verse 16, we learn that it's the very spirit of Jesus that sanctifies us as believers, sets us apart. And when we talk about sanctification at Trinity, a lot of times what I want to highlight is this simple truth, that we've been set apart not just from things, but that we've been set apart for things. So if, you're, if you are a believer this morning and you're being sanctified, you're being set apart from things that you need to leave behind, right? from old habits and behaviors and destructive attitudes and, and, and beliefs, right? You're, you've been set apart from things, but that's not where your story ends. Being distinct is not just what you used to be, but being distinct and being set apart and being sanctified means that you've been set apart not just from things, but that you've been set apart for things. There's a very specific purpose for which you exist, and Christians are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
what does this look like? What does our distinctiveness look like? And Jesus, right before he says these words, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, he gives this beautiful teaching, which we call the Beatitudes. You've heard of the Beatitudes probably. In fact, in fact last year, we started our year. Remember, if you were here, January and February of last year, we preached through all the Beatitudes. It's like one of my favorite series we've ever done. Go back and listen to it sometime to help you understand what Jesus is saying. But the Beatitudes give us this glimpse of the inner character of a person who is a member of the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, we see the values of the kingdom as they're expressed in the life of an individual. So let me just tell you what the Beatitudes are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit simply means this. I know how much I need God. We sang it this morning. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize I don't have it in myself. If God does not intervene in my situation and in my life, I am hopeless. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. It's not weakness. It's strength under control. It's, it's meekness. It's a willingness even to be overlooked and stepped over because your life is not about you. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn basically means blessed are those who feel the brokenness in this world in real ways and lament and grieve and are not blind to injustice and not blind to the ways in which the world is not the way it should be. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for justice, whose appetites are directed towards the things of God. Blessed are the merciful, those who have mercy on others and don't judge other people and don't assume things about other people's stories, but come to people with mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Instead of trying to sow strife and start arguments, making peace. And blessed are those who suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. Now, here's what one of the commentators said about this passage and the connection between the Beatitudes and Jesus calling us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It says this, it's impossible to live out the Beatitudes in private. They are powerfully social and they are powerfully outward and they're meant to be put to work. These are not just private characteristics that pious Christians should try to have in their lives. These are things that should influence every moment of our week everywhere that we go. And that is why Jesus, right on the heels of the beatitude, crowns his beautiful, brilliant uh, teaching with this powerful metaphor, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So what Jesus is saying, there's a way in which you're supposed to live in relation to the world based on what I'm teaching you. Live this way and you will be distinct. You will be salt and you will be light. Now we don't have time to go through the whole sermon here. But real quick, Jesus continues after this passage to show us how it looks to live different from this world, how it looks to live distinct. He says things like this. You've heard it say, don't murder someone. But I'm telling you, even if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus is saying, in a world filled with rage, where we're reactive and we're angry and we're ready to fight, even that anger is as, is as deadly to your spiritual well-being as the act of murder. Jesus says, you've heard it say don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you that even if you lust in your heart against someone, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is saying in a culture and a society that celebrates lust and platforms lust and sings about lust and entertains us with lust, he's saying there's a different way, faithfulness. In a, in a culture that doesn't honor commitments, Jesus talks in this sermon about honoring commitments like marriage. He talks about keeping your word even when it's a disadvantage to yourself. 
He talks about instead of striking back and finding vengeance, keeping peace. He says, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm saying to you, love your neighbor and pray for your enemy. He's saying, he's saying, he says that there's religious people who give money and they pray publicly, but they're doing it because they want to impress other people. And they want people to think, oh, look how spiritual and wonderful they are. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, you don't do those things to be seen and noticed and rewarded. He said, build your life here and now. Don't build up treasure here where it won't last. And then he says, don't judge other people who sin differently than you. These are all things that Jesus lists in this sermon. And what he's giving us is a picture of what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If you live your life by the Sermon on the Mount, your distinctiveness in this world today will be so evident. You will be salt and you will be light. And I want to give a warning here, Christians, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're saying, yeah, that's right, we're different than them. (laughs) Careful. We don't wear our distinctiveness as a badge so that we know who's on the inside and who's on the outside. We don't wear our distinctiveness like a medal around our neck so that we can impress other people and, and, and feel good about ourselves. And we do not wield our distinctiveness in, as a, like it's a sword so we can attack and destroy other people. This distinctiveness flows out of a relationship that we have with the Father. It's who we are, but it's also whose we are. And it makes us distinct. So what does this mean? Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when all of a sudden you realize, wow, the values of this world conflict with the values of the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised when people don't get you. Don't be surprised when people don't understand why you don't take advantage of the same things that maybe they're taking advantage of or that you don't laugh maybe or entertain yourself with the same things. Don't be surprised when they, people notice there's something different about you. Because if we lose our distinctiveness, Jesus is saying you're like salt that has lost its saltiness, which basically means you're worthless, you're useless, and you're like a covered up lamp. And later in this sermon, Jesus as he's starting to finish the sermon, he paints, I think, one of the most haunting pictures in Scripture of what it will look like if you claim to be salt and light, but you lose your saltiness and you live your life under, uh, under a bushel, so to speak. You don't live distinct. Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of the sermon, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, there's a lot of people who with their lips they say that their hearts belong to me and they get in church and they sing songs and, they, and they, they're faithful and they show up and they claim certain things, but they're not doing the will of the Father. There's actually no distinctiveness about the way in which they live their lives. And then these sobering verses, on that day, and Jesus is talking about really the end of time, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? which means didn't we speak your truth? Didn't we cast out demons in your name, which means didn't, didn't we have power to do things for your kingdom? And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's what it will sound like on that day. Weren't we salt? <laughs> Weren't we light? And Jesus will say, you lost your distinctiveness. I never knew you. You became just like everyone else. And so there are values uh, of the kingdom that we need to embody and embrace so that we can have the nature of salt and light distinct. Okay, let's talk about, let's get to the second point this morning. The nature of salt and light. Secondly, the value of salt and light. What is the value that salt and light brings? In order for us to make sense of this part of the passage, we need to understand the metaphor that Jesus is using, right? There's a metaphor. Jesus is not literally saying, you're salt and you're light. He's saying, you're like salt. It's a simile. It's a metaphor. You're like 
Uh, you're like light. What is he doing? Now, when we get to metaphors in Scripture, I just want to give you a little study tip here. You have to be careful, okay? Because you actually have to ask the question, what did this metaphor mean then? How was salt used then? How was light used then? You can't just make it mean anything you want. Like, I couldn't say to you, well, you know in Syracuse when it's snowy and when it's icy, and those trucks go out there, and they start throwing salt all over the road. That's you. You're supposed to be keeping people from slipping into sin and going off the road of God into the, into the path of destruction, right? I mean, it's not terrible, right? It's kind of true, but, but it's, 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 it's not what Jesus is saying here. I can't say, well, you know, lights, lights are lasers, and lasers are used in surgery, and you should do spiritual surgery on your neighbors and friends. That, you know, again, okay, uh, maybe there's some truth there, but it's not what Jesus is saying. So what was Jesus saying? How was salt used at this time? Well, the number one function of salt in the ancient world was a preservative. This is pre-electricity, right? It's 2,000 years ago. There's no ice boxes. There are no ice makers. There's, there's no fridges. It's a nightmare for me because I hate warm drinks. I got to have ice in all of my warm sodas, like my arch enemy. So I would have been pretty miserable. Of course, they didn't probably have soda back then either. But no ice makers, no fridge. If they wanted the meat to be preserved and not to rot, they had to either just put it in a ton of salt or they had to um, soak it in like a saline solution. So think about that. Jesus knows that everybody realizes that's what salt is used for. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Here's the implication. This world and our lives without Jesus, it tends and it trends towards decomposition and decay. And it rots away. And this is actually sin has this rotting away effect in our lives. It destroys us from the inside out, who we were created to be. And Jesus was under no illusion about the kingdom of this world. He knew that this world is decaying, it is decomposing, it is sick, and it needs salt. Because salt is an agent of preservation. And so when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was saying that in a world where things fester and putrefy and the germs of evil are everywhere present and active, you should be an agent of preservation. Everywhere you go, every person you touch, every word you speak, every act of love should have a preserving work in a world that is decaying. You're the salt of the earth. What does this look like? This could mean being a voice for justice and for righteousness. Speaking up when things are being done wrong to people who don't have a voice. This can, mean, this can mean rejecting cultural norms and holding to biblical teachings on issues as the rest of the world begins to reinterpret the Bible to fit modern sensibilities. This could be fighting for a friend who's struggling, and you know that they're struggling with their faith, you know that they're struggling with their emotions, with their mental health, and you're not going to let them go. You're going to fight for them. You're going to be there for them. This is being the salt of the earth. This could be loving someone who's hard to love. This could be speaking hope and life into a struggling marriage or hope and life to a struggling student or someone who's unhappy with their job coming along them and encouraging them and showing them the value in what they're doing. This could be random acts of kindness to people who can do nothing for you in return. But the point is, if you and I are going to be the salt of the earth and if we're going to slow down the decay of sin and evil in our world, we can't just sit back. we got to do something. It won't just happen. Salt was a preservative. Salt wasn't just a preservative back then, actually. Salt was also used the way we use it today. Salt was a spice and a condiment, Right? And uh, I, I watch a lot of Food Network. I'm a big Food Network fan, and I've seen enough Gordon Ramsay cooking shows to know that the number one mistake that home chefs and bad restaurants make is they under-season their food. 
I'm trying to help some of you this morning. You're under-seasoning your food. (laughs) Salt brings out flavor, right? Christians, maybe you never thought of your, 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 your role as a Jesus follower this way, but Christians should be bringing out flavors. Everywhere they go, there should be a way about which they live their lives that brings joy. They notice the small things. They celebrate everything. They bring joy into situations. They bring out the flavors of this world. They make their communities better places to live. They point to the wonders of creation. They enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy. They have fun. They have recreation. They enjoy time with people. They go to parties. They, have, they host people into their homes. They're bringing out the flavor. One of the commentators said this, Christians, as the salt of the earth, they ought to write the best books, be the most courteous, work the hardest, be the best musicians and artisans and artists and craftsmen and students, the salt of the earth. Now, salt, when it's used right, it actually brings out the flavor that's already there. When you properly salt a piece of meat and then you eat it, you don't really taste the salt. You're tasting the meat better than you would have without the salt, right? Salt makes steak steakier, <laughs> makes chicken chickenier. Like, if you do salt right, you taste stuff like, oh, wow, this is what chicken and steak are supposed to taste. It's bringing out flavors that are already there. And listen, this is what my point. When we live our lives as Christians and we love our families and we serve our communities and we do our work and we have fun, it brings out the flavor that's already there. Because God's already written himself into our creation. Romans says that God has revealed himself through creation. And so as we interact with creation and we do our work and we live our lives, the flavor that the salt of the earth brings is there because God is there. And he's he's revealed himself in creation. A pastor named Scott Sauls from Nashville, he gave some really helpful examples of what this might look like. Mothers, mothers reveal the nurture of God. Artists and entrepreneurs, the creativity of God. So as you're, as you're doing your art and as you're starting your businesses, you're bringing out a flavor of creativity. Where did creativity come from? From God, our creator. Government leaders and business executives, the rule of God. Healthcare professionals and counselors, therapists, the healing hand of God. Educators, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Nonprofit workers, the mercy of God. Fashion inventors and stylists, the beauty of God. Marketers and advertisers, the evangelistic energy of God. Authors and storytellers and filmmakers, the drama of God. Isn't that cool? And Josh Allen this afternoon, the victory of God, right? <laughs> Salt of the earth, we preserve and we bring flavor. I want to talk about light, and I'm going to be quick with this because I feel like light is a pretty obvious metaphor, right? This was a time where they didn't know the convenience of electricity, so they valued light in a way that you and I can't really appreciate. But when Jesus talked about a city on the hill, what, how would they see a city on a hill? A city on a hill was nothing more than a collection of lights, houses lit up, buildings lit up. It was a collection of lights. Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of what it looks like when we share our lives together, that our lives are a collection of lights that people can see. And then he talks about putting a lamp on a table, and if you were to put this basket or this bushel over the lamp, not only would the light not shine and give light in the house, it actually would eventually extinguish the flame. This is not a light bulb. This is a flame back then. And so with the lack of oxygen, the light would actually go out. And Jesus is saying something here really important. He's saying two very important things. Number one, your 
your light should shine, but it's not meant to shine isolated. It's meant to shine with other people. You're a city on a hill. Get in relationship. Get in community. And the impact of 200 lights in the darkness is so much more than the impact of one light. But he's also saying your life is not meant to be led in secret. Your faith and your hope in Jesus is not meant to be the last thing that somebody discovers about you. You don't got to be annoying about it. (laughs) But it needs to be a part of your life, right? People need to know that this is true of you because light reveals what needs to be seen, the bad, the good, and the ugly. Light reveals things as they really are. And then this last thought I loved, I read it this week and I never thought this before, but light is persistent. You ever thought about that? Light is persistent. It constantly assaults the surface of the earth and will penetrate the slightest crack. Light never gives up. The darkest place is not safe from light, even if the tiniest opening appears. Light is persistent. And we live our lives in a way that show the goodness of God, that reveal the issues of, our, of other people's hearts even, and points people to Jesus. Now, we don't generate our own light Jesus, later in the gospel, I think it's actually in John's gospel, Jesus stands up in a festival, a religious festival, and he says, I am the light of the world. Now, that's what he called us. And it's really cool because it's the only name that Jesus calls himself that he also calls you. He says, I am, he says that I'm the bread of life. He never called you the bread of life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's not calling you the way, the truth, and the life. But he did say, I'm the light of the world. And here he says, you are the light of the world. But he's the sun and we're the moon. Do you get it? We're reflecting his light. It's not his light. And even when your life, you're in a struggle, you're in a dry season, and you feel like, you know, the moon and its cycle, sometimes it's bright and it's full, and it's perfectly reflecting the sun. And then sometimes it's just a little sliver of the moon. But the sun is still being reflected through it. And the sun hasn't changed. Just the seasons have changed, right? And so as we reflect the light to the world around us, sometimes you're going to be in a season where you're going to feel like it's a full moon, and you're just like, everything you say works. People are just running to you asking how to follow Jesus, right? That doesn't happen, but, but that would be cool. You're in a season where you just feel like, man, everything's working. And then sometimes you're in a season where it feels like nothing's working, but you can still, even if it's just the slightest sliver, you can still reflect his light. And his son, his light is still true. God made us to be visible. God made us to illuminate life. And God has placed each of us exactly where he wants us to shine his light. Wherever you work, there's darkness. Your light is needed. Students, where you go to school, I know I got girls in high school, middle school, and elementary school. There's darkness. Light. is. In fact, it's one of the things I pray over my girls sometimes when we send them off to school in the morning. God, let them be light. Let them be light in darkness. This doesn't mean preserve and flavor. If you just want to be a Christian who preserves things, you're going to become a jerk who just tells everybody what's wrong with their lives. If you want to be a Christian who only flavors things, you might lose your distinctiveness because you just kind of get caught up with all the good things of life. But if you're going to be the salt of the earth, you got to do both. Preserve and bring flavor. That's what God's calling us to do. Last thing, I'm going to ask the band to join me. What is the purpose? And this is quick. The purpose of salt and light is simply this. Like salt... And like light, you and I are most useful. Listen, you are most useful where you are most needed. You're most useful where you are most needed. If we are salt, how do we maximize our effectiveness? We must be spread out across a decaying world. Salt can sit for years in the salt shaker, but it doesn't do anything good until it's poured out. So our purpose is to be poured out, 
to be sent, to be spread. We gather like this on Sundays so that we can scatter the rest of the week and be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If I turn on a flashlight in a fully lit room, it's barely noticeable, it's not useful, it really isn't necessary, but if you and I are in a pitch black dark cave and I turn a flashlight on, it's life-giving and it means so much. Don't run away from darkness, Christians, because you're just, you're overwhelmed by it. Be light, shine. Don't just shake your fist angrily at the darkness in this world. Light does not conquer darkness by complaining about it. Light conquers darkness by going into the darkness and shining for the glory of God. Salt and light, where you are most useful is where you are most needed. And we have to live scattered like salt and sent like light. Let me finish with this. 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, we have a historical document called the Letter of Mathodus to Diognetus. It's a man named Mathodus who's writing a letter to a man named Diognetus. Mathodus has spent a lot of time around Christians, and Diognetus has only heard rumors of Christians. And so this letter is Mathodus trying to explain to Diognetus what Christians are like. I want you to hear what he says, because this is salt and light. He says, Christians have a common table which means they, they are generous. Anyone can eat at their table. They have a common table, but not a common bed, which means they're faithful. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws from Rome, and at the same time, they surpass those laws by, the, by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted, and then they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Salt and light. 300 years, the first 300 years after Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father, the church grew in explosive exponential ways, but they had nothing. They had no systems. They, had, they didn't have buildings like this. They had no sound systems. They had no structure. They barely had organizational leadership. They had no money. They had no one in power. They had no one, no access to power. How did the church explosively grow in 300 years? And biblical historians and scholars say that one of the most important reasons why the church grew this way outside of the sovereign work of God and the work of the Spirit was the beauty of their lives. That their lives, were so, their generosity overwhelmed people their kindness, the way that they were being martyred for their faith and as they were being killed for their faith, they were praying for the people who were killing them. They were singing hymns to God as they were being burned at a stake. And what happened was the Roman world and the Greek world began to look at the lives of these Christians and go, I don't, I don't know what they got, but I don't have it. There's a beauty about their lives. And to be salt and to be earth, or to be salt of the earth and the light of the world means that there should be a beauty about our lives that reflects the beauty of Jesus and makes people ask, wow, how are you keeping your cool when everybody else is freaking out about the economy? How come you can treat people from the opposite side of the aisle with decency and, and, and treat them okay? How is it that you serve people and love people who don't do anything for you in return? You know what the answer is? You are the salt of the earth. and You are the light of the world. 
So let people see your good works, not for your glory, but that it might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together.